0: Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, My name is David Clement, co-host of the program Flying Solo this week because my colleague Yael is on vacation. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to everybody celebrating Thanksgiving. Um, To those listening uh, to the podcast, this is a reminder that this radio program airs every Saturday at 10 a.m on The Big Talker FM, broadcasting out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, Very excited to have today's show uh, be focused primarily on the topic of vaccines. Um, We have a great guest coming up, Dr. Jeff Singer, whom we have had before. Uh, If you're a longtime listener, you have certainly uh, heard him before. Um, a fantastic interview uh, where we go through everything vaccine. Um, so if you have any questions about vaccines or the the, the process, safety, um, things like that, this is definitely the show for you. But before we get to um, before we get to our guest, uh, I did just want to touch on one, thing or one trend that we're noticing uh, and we've touched on this a couple times in the program but it is increasingly um increasingly relevant given uh, whom uh, president elect biden is uh, selecting for his cabinet or who is whom he is proposing to select uh for his cabinet and it is I mean I will say that I am actually quite um quite pleased by whom um pre- the president elect has picked um mostly because he's left a lot of who I think the crazy people are out of cabinet and so he has not um he has not uh put folks like uh like elizabeth warren or bernie sanders um onto his in his cabinet thus far Uh, the folks whom he has selected seem to be very um technocratic Uh, some may see that as a negative but they're not particularly famous people um they're not people necessarily really even with Um, with strong political ambitions in terms of the electoral space these are very much operators in in the classical sense of who forms government so it's all very interesting Um, I also highly recommend our listeners go and uh, have a have a look at whom the secretary of state will be um, because he has a has a Pretty uh, interesting story. His name is is Antony Blinken. Um, he recently gave a speech about how uh, his stepfather, his late stepfather, was uh, one of the um, one of the only people in his uh, community who actually escaped the concentration camps in Nazi Germany uh, and was ended ended up being liberated by. American soldiers after fleeing into the woods. So uh, not that I'm particularly excited about a Biden presidency, but it does look like uh, that it does look like President-elect Biden has opted to go with a more moderate and more centrist uh, cabinet, which um, unless you're a fan of AOC and the squad, I think everybody can celebrate. So um, without much further ado, beyond that, we are going to uh, now go to our interview with Dr. Singer, uh, a great interview, uh, all about vaccines, and so we will get Jamie to play that clip. Don't go looking for the reasons, don't go asking
1: Jesus why. I meant
0: to know the answers they belong and welcome back to consumer choice radio uh, it is with great pleasure that i uh, introduce our our next guest a return visitor a uh, very much a friend of the show dr jeffrey singer who is a senior fellow at the cato institute working in the department of health policy studies and is the principal and founder Of Valley Surgical Clinics, the largest and oldest group of private medical surgical practice in Arizona. Dr. Skinner, thank you. Dr. Singer, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So I I wanted to invite you onto the show. Obviously, the big news over the last seven to 10 days has been vaccines. Uh, There have been a a few very significant, um, announcements, uh, in terms of vaccines. There's the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, my, my favorite, my favorite announcement so far is that somehow Dolly Parton helped fund the Moderna vaccine, which I, I thought was particularly, uh, funny. Um, that, that, she, that she was getting some credit for that, but um, so th- these vaccines, uh, what makes them different is that they are mRNA vaccines, and uh, if you could just briefly describe the difference between a mRNA vaccine and a conventional vaccine for our listeners, I think that would be a great starting point for us.
1: Okay, by the way, this is a very exciting development in general for medical science, because uh, <laughs> No mRNA vaccines have, have been developed prior to this, even though uh, they've been you know, talked about a lot on the, on a the theoretical drawing board. So basically, uh, the, the, the conventional way vaccines have been developed in the past is either a, a dead virus or bacterium or whatever you're trying to <laughs> immunize the patient to, towards, either a dead one or weakened, also called attenuated version, And in more recent years, uh, perhaps a a component of that virus or that pathogen is injected into the person and the the person's immune system is exposed to it and then goes through what immune systems do. You have basically uh, two types of lymphocytes, which are types of white blood cells. They're the B and and the T. The B gets that name because they originate in the bone marrow. The T get that name because they originate in the thymus gland and uh, basically the B lymphocytes form antibodies, which are chemical compounds that lock on to the surface of the invading pathogen, and in, in different ways either render it uh, attractive to other white blood cells to eat, or just render it ineffective where it can't enter a host cell and do the damage that it does. There are different, there's several different ways in which these antibodies work, but basically the antibody, for all intents and purposes, immobilizes the the invader. Um, The T lymphocytes, they're different types. Some of them directly go after and eat, attack the invader. Uh, Some of them actually uh, kind of read the chemical makeup of the surface uh, portion of the invader and actually store a memory for it. And then uh, if they come in contact with that invader again, they could actually release factors that wake up the B lymphocytes to once again, start producing those antibodies and also mobilize other components of the immune system to go after the invader. So you have, and, and the T cell response is called cellular immunity because it's the cell directly doing it. And the, and the, and the, the B cell response is, is, uh, is antibody immunity. So that's the, that's the way vaccines work. Uh, and, uh, so sometimes people will feel sick after getting a vaccination, and that could oftentimes be because they received uh, a weakened pathogen. So they sort of have a mild form of the disease, but the exposure stimulates them to immunity. So the next time that pathogen enters their body, their immune system attacks it, and they don't get sick. So that's that's basically in a nutshell. Now the mRNA is really interesting because what uh, what they the developers have been able to do is, uh, you know, it, people may remember from basic biology, the DNA is in the nucleus, and the RNA, which is uh, it, it is a s- single strand, um, goes back. Well, the messenger RNA goes back and forth in and out of between the nucleus and the cytoplasm, or the outer part of the cell, sort of like between the yolk and the egg white. They go back and forth, and actually deliver information. Uh, from the DNA to ribosomes in the cytoplasm. And then the ribosomes read this information and manufacture proteins or whatever. They've been instructed to manufacture. That's how our cells work. So they have engineered mRNA that when you're injected with this vaccine, the mRNA actually goes into the cells into which the vaccine was injected and makes the cells, produce uh sort of a a replica of a portion of the coronavirus it's a protein uh that is the uh, a a replica of one of the coronavirus spikes on the surface of the coronavirus Mm -hmm. and and this so your own cells are being basically um commandeered to produce a replica of a portion of the coronavirus which is in continuously released into your bloodstream. And then your immune system reacts to that and builds up antibodies as well as T cell immunity, cellular immunity. And then if, if that pathogen were to enter your body, you go after it and attack it. But the good news is you weren't given a weakened portion of the virus. You weren't given any of the virus. Um, it was, it, 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 and you don't have to actually kind of grow this virus and break off components of it to do this, you could actually engineer this. So what we've discovered now, this is the first, there are two vaccines that were made using this process, the Pfizer one and the Moderna one. Uh, and in both cases, they're very effective, uh, uh, roughly 95% effective. Uh, I And they've also been able to ascertain, because you could test for this in a lab, they're not routine outpatient kind of tests, but you could test, they've been ascertained to have stimulated a large amount of T cell immunity. The good thing about that is, it's, it's normal once you develop antibodies, over time, your antibody levels will decrease if you haven't been exposed to the pathogen. It sort of makes sense. Why would your B cells be occupying their energy, making an antibody in something that hasn't been around you in a year or two? Yeah, so it makes st- sense. They, Yeah, they start to taper off. But if you will come in contact with that antibody, that antigen or pathogen, the thing the invader, once again, your T cells will have memory for it. And they will, as soon as they come in contact with it, not only will some of them go after it, but others will awaken your B cells to start producing the antibody again. Okay. And, and that's more lasting immunity.
0: Mm-hmm. So w-
1: there's already been a lot of, there've been a number of studies already in recent months from various, uh, excellent research centers suggesting that, uh, con- uh, Contrary to what our initial fears were, it appears that people who've been infected with COVID-19 are having robust antibody levels six, seven, even eight months after infection. But in addition, there have been other studies showing that they seem to also have T cell immunity. So just because your antibody levels taper off over time doesn't necessarily mean you're not still immune. Now, of course, the big unanswered question is how long will your T cell immunity last? We don't know that yet. But, but anyway, so this is exciting because, and we think also that maybe because your your the mRNA is making your cells kind of uh, over a period of time keep producing this this synthetic uh, replica of a portion of the coronavirus, maybe that's why it's so effective because your immune system is getting a steady uh, mm-hmm. exposure to it, whereas. With the conventional vaccines, it's not getting that continued, steady-state exposure
0: over a long period of time. And so, on the efficacy, because when I saw these numbers, I mean, I was um, I was pretty excited about it. Um, I've kind of jokingly said to those who are maybe hesitant to take the vaccine when it comes, um, I've said, "Well, give me your spot in line, so that so that I can get it." Um, but in terms of efficacy, so I think the Pfizer. Uh, vaccine was 95, Moderna was around 94 and a half and AstraZeneca was between the two doses was around 70. How do those rank against other things that we get vaccinated for? Are they exponentially higher than the efficacy rates of other vaccines? Or is this really par for the course for all vaccines?
1: Well, it depends on the vaccine. Actually, the AstraZeneca one is more of a conventionally developed vaccine. It's not an mRNA vaccine, mm-hmm. vaccine. And and its efficacy ranges from about, I think, 50 something percent up to 90 percent, and averages around 70. Um, it, it depends. The, the influenza vaccinations that we get every year are 40 to 50 percent eff- uh, efficacy. So, um, this is actually outstanding. We couldn't have asked for better efficacy uh, results. Um, I should mention also that the exciting uh, aspect of the mRNA vaccine is that uh, this has the potential. Now now that we know you can develop a vaccine using the mRNA technique, this has the potential for developing vaccines against different cancers. Because you can get the, uh, again, the mRNA can be programmed to get your your cells to produce uh, components of the malignancy that you have in your body. Mm -hmm. And then it stimulates your immune system to go after it. So you can harness the immune system against your cancer, which that that could be just an amazing advance. And just think about not having to use chemotherapy, maybe even immunizing people against the subsequent development of cancer. So this this is really opening the door. And, uh, you know, progress is being made so rapidly. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next, you know, five to 10 years, we, we 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 start having vaccines against different cancers, which would be just fantastic.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be. I'm I'm sure everyone listening has either personally felt the impact of cancer or knows somebody who has. So the, the yeah. prospect of that would be would be um, just incredible. It's it's hard to actually verbalize what that would mean if you could create um, a, a a system where you started to proactively vaccinate against against various forms yeah. of cancer. Now. Uh one thing that has, has come up, and I, I've been fairly outspoken in terms of trying to explain to people the efficacy of vaccines, um, trying to counter myths and things like that uh, in terms of vaccines and vaccine safety. One thing that has come up quite often is a lot of people will say, well, no vaccine has ever been created this quickly and we feel like it was rushed, and therefore it may not be safe. Um, and so I'd love to hear your response on that in terms of whether or not they're safe, or maybe what some of the testing process looks like that the ordinary um, the ordinary patient may not know. Uh, just give us some insight in terms of where, where, where the safety argument lies, and whether or not this actually is a rushed process.
1: Well, I know I'm going to be lining up to get the vaccination. Um, the i don't think it is a rush process they have uh first of all obviously the drug makers don't want to have their reputations destroyed um i think unfortunately the government provides them with liability uh, protection which they shouldn't um but um um the they have actually a really good safety profile now between the two the moderna and pfizer they got uh, several thousand patients uh where not only have they demonstrated efficacy but With each stage, there's both safety and efficacy being monitored. Mm -hmm. Of course, nothing is without risk at all, anything. You know, if you take an aspirin, you could have an allergic reaction to it. You can get an ulcer. So nothing is uh, perfectly safe. But uh, the evidence is that it it appears very safe. And independent uh, uh, analysis is being done by independent third parties for the FDA. Um, And uh, they don't have any sort of... uh, you know, vested interest one way or the other to, to take sides. Uh, so I, 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 for one, feel very comfortable with it, but I've actually argued recently, actually, in the press that, uh, you know, I think we wait too long with the efficacy and, and safety studies. Um, and I have Michael Cannon from the Cato Institute. He's the director of health policy studies. He and I just recently came out with a white paper called Drug Reformation in which we go into all of this, but, but basically because of the, of the regulatory apparatus, it takes an average of 12 years and $500 billion to bring a new drug to market. And it, it wasn't always that way. So that it, you know, if, if, if originally uh, the only purpose of the Food and Drug Administration was to confirm that it was safe and it was to cle- leave efficacy matters up to the clinicians. I could tell you as a clinician, uh, you can't pick up a medical journal or go to a medical meeting without the discussion usually centering around efficacy, the efficacy of, even if it's surgery, you know, which procedure works best for which situation, but drugs, you know, the efficacy of drug A versus drug B for the treatment of of a particular condition. And, and there are these uh, clinical trials going on all the time. And that, that's mostly what's published in the medical literature. So in 1962, uh, the Keith Alver Harris amendments were passed to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that suddenly required the FDA to uh, determine efficacy. So, drug makers, when they do a new drug application, they're supposed to tell the FDA what the drug is intended to treat. And they have these lengthy trials, so long after the drug has been shown to be safe, we have to wait years for the drug to be proven to have efficacy for the treatment of a particular condition Mm -hmm. but then ironically once it's okay for that as far as the FDA is concerned uh clinicians can use it for any condition that they want to Mm -hmm. so you have to wait 12 years for it to be okay to be used for condition a but at that point they trust our judgment to use it for b through z so why couldn't we just get going
0: with a through z and hasn't that been what has largely, not not on the vaccine side, but on the therapeutic side in terms of treatment, haven't most of the, and maybe the answer is all of them, all of the various medicines that have been used to treat patients, especially patients with severe symptoms, weren't the, were they not all drugs designed for other illnesses? Uh,
1: no, not all for other okay. illnesses, but but there's, there's a common... Con- term called off-label use. Off-label okay. use means when you're using it for something other than what the FDA said it's approved for. Okay. And roughly 20% of all drugs prescribed by, by physicians in the United States, and I imagine in Canada as well, are what they call off-label use. There, I, I lose track of how many... Uh, I'll just give you a basic example that me as a surgeon use mm-hmm. an off-label drug. Everybody's probably heard of the antibiotic erythromycin. And it's, if you look, the FDA approved it for the use of the treatment of certain infections. It's an antibiotic. Well, we learned maybe 30 years ago that it, it also stimulates the peristalsis of the stomach so that when you occasionally get people, these are surgical patients usually, who develop a, a paralysis, paralysis of the stomach so we're unable to feed them because the stomach just isn't churning the food. And this, this you know, we have to feed them intravenously, it's very distressful to the patient, prolongs hospitalization. So we learned a long time ago that if you give them erythromycin, uh, in, in the great majority of cases, it corrects the problem. It stimulates the stomach. Well, that's okay. an off-label use. I mean, that's something that uh, there's not a single uh, pra- hospital-practicing hospital uh, physician, whether it's a surgeon or otherwise, who's not aware of that and doesn't use that. And some of them, if you probably mentioned them, you know, by the way, you know, the FDA never approved it for that they'll, they'll be surprised to know that they they assumed it was approved because it's so commonly used. Aspirin now is commonly used, of course, to prevent, uh, um, you know, strokes, mm-hmm. and heart attacks in high risk patients. It wasn't until I think 2014 that the FDA finally uh, approved that to be also added to the label. That was an off label use uh, up until uh, just a few years ago. So off uh, the the point is that a lot of uh, the the people are actually kept in, from a lot of drugs uh, that have been proven safe long ago. But now we're just waiting for the FDA to be convinced that it has efficacy. Yet the FDA trusts the the cl- clinicians to make determinations as to the efficacy of a drug once they've approved it. <laughs> so yeah. it's just and 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 that's why you've had things in this country like the right to try movement where there are yep. people. Who are you know terminally ill? Who are saying I want to try it? I understand that uh, that it hasn't been approved, but we all you know it's safe. It's passed phase one trials, which are mm-hmm. safety trials, and I have nothing to lose. I want to try it. It's my life, and of course now we have a legislation allowing that. But uh, so as far as vaccines, now vaccines are a little different because um, how we we do know, for example, in the case of the ones that have just been developed, that they ninety percent of the time or better are stimulating t and b cell immunity but the big unknown is how long does that immunity last might you need another vaccination a few years down the road that's the kind mm-hmm. of thing we're just going to have to wait and monitor to determine that because mm-hmm. we're not going to know until we know uh, for example tetanus shots we know about every 10 years you get you need to get a booster there are other kind of vaccinations that you don't that it's a one-time vaccination that's all you need so we don't know. I would suspect, based upon experience with other viruses of this sort, that we'll probably need a booster every few years at the at the at the at the best, maybe annually, like we need to get annual flu shots. And of course, m- viruses tend to mutate. This hasn't mutated very much lately, uh, as, as of yet, but but they tend to mutate, and eventually, you need to develop a vaccine for that strain if it's mutated enough where it doesn't resemble the original one. But mm-hmm. as far as safety is concerned, its safety profile looks very good. And, and I personally think that the, the risks of a reaction to the drug are, are way outweighed by the benefits of, of vac- getting vaccinated. And I myself will, you know, I'm a hospital worker, so yes. I'm actually the prioritizing. Now, I already had COVID-19 back sometime in April, and I have the antibodies. Okay. Uh, so, so I would consider myself a low priority because yep. I'm immune. I just don't know how long my immunity is going to last. Yep. So if there's a limited number of vaccinations to give out to hospital workers, I'll tell people, let them go ahead of me. If, Not yeah. because I'm afraid, but because I I already have the antibodies and they need it worse than I do. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, I'm, I have no qualms about getting vaccinated with it.
0: And, and um, on, on the, so we, we talk about antibodies and how long uh, how long it lasts for. And I know that some people were critical of Trump when he tweeted after he had COVID. He's like, well, I'm immune now. So, um, and I, I think f- what was lost in the discussion is that it was just a question of how long he was immune for um, rather than if you can actually get it right away uh, for a second time if you're exposed again. But mm-hmm. Another thing that that Trump was um, criticized for, and, and I'd love to know your take, whether it was positively or negatively, was um, the, the program Warp Speed and kind of his claim to success on the vaccine being created. Um, are you able to just walk our listeners through maybe what Warp Speed was in terms of a government program? And then whether or not, if it was necessary, or, or, or how maybe that process uh, would have unfolded without it?
1: Well, uh, first of all, in, in, as a libertarian, uh, I don't have a, a really a problem in principle when we're dealing with a national emergency, like a public health crisis, like a pandemic. Mm-hmm. To me, that's very you know analogous to being in war. Yeah, And it's a legitimate function of the central government to, Couldn't agree to come more. into action here. Yep. And, you know, instead of spending taxpayer money on armaments for a war, if it's spending taxpayer money on helping uh, facilitating the rapid development of vaccines and therapeutics to mm-hmm. fight off the invading enemy... I don't have a problem in principle with that we could we could argue over you know whether it's being done wisely or indiscriminately but the in principle I don't have a problem with it and um, uh, some of my colleagues at Cato who deal with fiscal issues may do no more of the actual green eye shade details sure. of this yep. but generally speaking what what uh, Warp Speed has done is first of all the regulators have been encouraged and, and urged to fast-track things. So that's why we're able to get, uh, they basically are, are, are speeding up what would normally be, like in the case of vaccines, it could take uh, 10 to 12 years to develop a vaccine under the normal circumstances. So they're speeding up the process, not requiring as lengthy clinical trials. Once they're, con- once they're satisfied about the safety, they're kind of speeding up and getting to the final step more quickly. Although once they're released, they will continue to be monitored, which is always what happens. That's why sometimes there'll be recalls. Even after the 12 year process, drugs have been released and subsequently found to have a problem and have been recalled. So nothing of course in life is guaranteed. So that that has to be a caveat. But so one thing has been that. The other thing has been the government has been giving out money to facilitate research. For example, uh, in the case of the Moderna one, uh, I think the National Institutes of Health gave significant funding to Moderna to help develop the vaccine. Pfizer and BioNTech, they did this with their own money, which is, mm-hmm. I, I think that's great. And it's an example of how a private sector doesn't necessarily need taxpayer money to do, to do mm-hmm. these things. Also, um, uh, the, the other thing about Warp Speed is the, the, the government, the federal government is trying to uh, get these, once these are found to be approved to be used, get them out there as quickly as possible so the government has sort of in advance ordered millions and millions of doses uh, and in many cases uh, have the the manufacturers are already producing them even though they haven't been uh, approved yet to be released to the public but they're producing them and they've been ordered and they're going to be paid for by the government so that the minute the fda gives the green light we don't have to now wait weeks for them to be made they're already ready to go. I think that's wise. Um, uh, in fact, we're, I think we just learned yesterday from the, the person who oversees warp speed that we might have the vaccine available and being people may be getting vaccinated within 48 hours of the FDA deciding that it's okay, which could be like in a couple of weeks, this could be going on. Which is So, so incredible. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think that's a good idea. Um, you know, president Trump, uh, is, is uh, rightly criticized for you know he, he's been all over the map on one hand he's told us he's he's behaving in a way to suggest we shouldn't take this vi- virus seriously and you know we sh- our leaders should lead by example so you know we should be wearing masks in crowded public places and he should be should have been doing that uh so he does that on the one hand and on the other hand you know he tells us what a great job he is done in getting rid of this terrible, invisible enemy. So, you know, it's he, kind of bipolar, I guess. But but uh, I think warp speed has, it has been, you know, in principle, I think it's perfectly okay to do this. Mm-hmm. And so far, I think it's, you know, look at this. Who would have thought that this virus really started attacking the U.S. and Canada? Mid-March. Late, late March. Well, February. yeah, late February, yeah. yeah. And here it is the same year, and we're going to have people getting vaccinated before the year is out. I think that's remarkable. But another thing it points out, and I've written about this, is if we could develop things this quickly when we need to in an emergency, then why uh, we, we should not go back to the old way when this emergency passes. This tells us that when the, when the regulators need to, they can get drugs out to people much more quickly uh, mm-hmm. than, than they are. Mm-hmm. And, and I would argue that Fast track should be the way it always is,
0: because yeah, remember
1: with fast tracking we 're still monitoring it once it 's released we 're not and even with, when it 's slow tracked when it 's slow walked, um, we still monitor you know the FDA has approved many drugs that were subsequently pulled off the market because they were found subsequently to, to actually have problems
0: yeah, and I think that's, that that will be one big question for the Biden administration when they look at all of this in retrospect. I hope that there 's someone in the room. Who can say, okay, well, the way we used to do things is now clearly outdated and has had a lot of negative repercussions in terms of the the slowness of, of how quickly um, drugs come to market. And if we can do so safely, um, let's focus on how quick we can actually move from A to B. That may be the one silver lining from the pandemic yeah. is that if you have the right people in the room, they may be able to convince decision-makers to kind of reevaluate some of these processes. And it's funny because it's, that goes for everything from uh, whether or not restaurants should be allowed to deliver alcohol, which many States allowed, allow for now. And it's like, wait, why was that ever illegal? Exactly. Uh, It's kind of silly. And so hopefully that same mindset can be, uh, can be implemented for, um, for, for the pharmaceutical industry, the medical uh, profession and things like that. Um, I I would encourage uh, your listeners to uh, take a look
1: at this new white paper that Michael Cannon and I wrote called drug reformation and government's power to require prescriptions, because we get into all this, you know, right now we're saying this is an emergency, but why should it be up to the government to determine what's an emergency? I mean, if you're uh, a terminal cancer patient, then every hour is an emergency to you. So why, why uh, do we allow the government to, the the regulators to fast track certain drugs when the government decides it's an emergency but not when the patient decides it's an emergency and we have a lots of uh, suggestions for reform proposals i mean something relatively easier is allow for example reciprocity so um you know there are drugs that in the united states that are not approved years after they've been approved in other countries and a lot of Americans mm-hmm. who could afford to go to these other countries to get the medication.
0: Yeah, and, we, uh, my colleagues and I, actually, uh, in in very early on in COVID, that was one of our major policy suggestions. Was, yeah, we use the OECD as a as a benchmark. If if France approves a therapeutic or a drug for to treat X, then we should take the French at their word and fast track things through. Um, through the approval process rather than say, okay, you got to jump through. You, yes, you're approved in the UK and Germany, but now we're going to make you go through FDA approval or Health Canada approval in Canada. And just not only in terms of, uh, I mean, there's some pretty clear questions of patient access. It's, it invokes just an incredible emotion of unfairness that you may have a cancer treatment available in Germany and it exists. And right. there, it, you could get it in Canada if, if the government were to just say yes, or you right. could get it if the FDA in the United States were to just say yes, there's this incredible feeling. That's of,
1: immoral, isn't it? The government is denying you your right to self-medicate to try to save your life. I mean,
0: that's yes. immoral. Yeah. And, we're, and, and, and the crazy thing is, is that we're not talking about some snake oil from some guy on the street who's selling you something. But you know
1: what, even if it is snake oil, I believe that, you have a right to decide if you want to take this sure. we oh, get of into, course. we get into that yes. in our in our white yes. paper yes. um now that's just one proposal for example, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and Mike Lee of Utah mm-hmm. have introduced a bill that would called the result act. Don't ask me what that acronym stands for. I forgot, but basically what it would do is would say list certain countries like m- most of the e u countries Canada, australia new zealand Japan, and say any drug approved in these countries shall be given reciprocal approval in our country. Uh, but Beautiful. there should be uh, other, I would argue that, you know, before the FDA was even in business of doing this, the American Medical Association, in 1905, created its Council on Pharmacy and, and Chemistry. And they were examining all drugs and doing their own testing and determining whether or not they thought they were safe and effective. And any manufacturer that wanted to be able to advertise in any American Medical Association publication had to agree to submit to that. So that actually was sort of put out of business in 1955 by the FDA. I mean, it mm-hmm. used to have a reason for existing. But these kind of or, in, entities like this, I think as a patient, I should be able to, to go to a, a, into a pharmacy, for example, and look at a product, and it could say FD, approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Or it could say not approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, but approved by the American Medical Association Council on Pharmacy. Yep. And chemistry, or approved by the Canadian, by Health Canada, yep. and and as an individual, I should be able to decide whether I, even though it's not approved by the FDA, it's approved by Health Canada. That's good Are enough for me. I, yeah. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I should be I, able to make that choice myself. Yeah, and there'll be other independent third parties that also could easily. There'll be a mm-hmm. need for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's and, what and I would argue, and that was one of those things that I would always say to people is that it's it's the assumption that something good enough for the Germans would not be good enough for American patients or Canadian patients was just baffling to me. And then you factor in the second half of that equation, which is the increased cost. I mean it doesn't matter what health system you're operating in, whether it's single payer, government run in Canada, a mixed model in Europe or whatever you describe the US model. Um, everyone is everyone, everyone is concerned about cost. Everyone is talking about drug prices, and a huge aspect of that has to be the regulatory approval process. And oh, if you can, much, yeah. and if you can do it once in Health Canada or 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 the UK or Germany or France or anywhere else or the United States, um, and then not have to go through all of those hoops and hurdles, it's it's I think it's undeniable that there are going to be savings there, and those are going to be passed right. on to health systems, whether drugs are procured nationally through some sort of pharma care program, um, like in some countries, or if they're done privately, the savings are going to be there. And I think everyone's going to be better off because of that. So that's the other half of not only is it unfair that patients in one country may get safe access to a drug that works, uh, it's also incredibly costly to keep replicating these silliness, the silliness.
1: uh, Also, also the government has since 1951 in the United States has, the FDA has decided what's over the counter and what's prescription only. Mm -hmm. And it's up to them to decide whether or not it gets moved to over the counter, which oftentimes is subject to politics. So for example, uh, as you know, insulin is available over the counter in Canada, but not in the United States except for two forms of insulin. Okay. The old type and uh, NPH and regular or Novalin and Humulin, yep. which uh, were grandfathered because before the FDA started getting into this business, they were already available over the counter. So they've been grandfathered. So, uh, but all of the other types of insulin um, you can't get without a prescription, but you can get it in Canada without a prescription. You, you need to go to the pharmacist to ask, yeah. but you don't, but you, you don't need a prescription from a doctor. And they're several countries uh you can get for example albuterol inhaler the, the, that's what we call it in the united states it's, it's got a different name in, in england in europe and england but you can get that over the counter in england for example you can't get that over the counter here there's a whole host of medicines
0: same like goes i believe for birth control depending on the jurisdiction oh, yeah. where you, you can request it right. over the counter and so you mean you, you touched on that some of this is political um i don't know where where the tension or where the pull and push would come from, where? where is the argument made that all of these substances have to be by prescription? Who's making that, that argument? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting you ask
1: that, because it's all in our white paper.
0: Okay, go to, perfect. Go to,
1: to cato.org slash drug reformation.
0: We'll put it but in the show notes as well, so that everybody can see up that until
1: nineteen Up until 1951, um, the uh, some drug makers would decide that we want this to be available to they they instruct the pharmacy. You can sell this to people providing they have a prescription. That was a proprietary decision made by the drug manufacturer because they may have decided that, you know, this is kind of complicated. Somebody can get confused. We'll get sued. So if they're prescribed by someone, at least we know somebody's taking responsibility. But that was their decision. And then that decision was taken away from them in 1951. And basically the government made that decision. So that's when well, first of all, there are different ex- examples of politics. So first is the politics of regulatory capture. The FDA tends to defer <laughs> uh, nowadays to the manufacturers because the manufacturers sort of have captured the regulation apparatus. So here's a classic example. Uh, antihistamines. Now, the, over the, for years, the sedating antihistamines, which are dangerous, like Benadryl, they've been available over the counter in the U.S., Now, they are so sedating that, for example, the the Federal Aviation Administration will not allow pilots to fly a plane if they've taken Benadryl, okay? You're not supposed to, it says, don't operate a a machinery or a vehicle under the influence. That's over-the-counter. But in 1993, Shearing Plow developed uh, Claritin, which was the first non-sedating antihistamine. That was made prescription only, okay? So the prescription drug was safer than the -the over-the-counter drug. That's just one example. Meanwhile the shearing plow lobbied uh, the European regulators to make it over-the-counter there, arguing this is safer than the sedating antihistamines. So Claritin was available over-the-counter in Europe, but in the United States, it was prescription only. And that's because in our country, insurance companies usually don't cover over-the-counter medication. People pay out of pocket, but they cover prescription medication. So the the, 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 the uh, pharmacy, pharmacy company, Or when you're dealing with the healthcare practitioner too, we can charge a high price to the third party deep pocket. And of course we may be in a negotiation back and forth, but we could charge a high price and get more than we otherwise would get if we're dealing directly with the consumer because they wouldn't pay that kind of money. So uh, uh, by the late nineties, insurance companies petitioned the FDA to make Claritin over the counter because they were spending a fortune paying for this, non-sedating antihistamine, which is clearly safer than the over-the-counter antihistamine. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Shearing Plough testified before the FDA saying, no, 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 it's not safe to be <laughs> over-the-counter, even though they were telling the opposite in Europe. Then, uh, by the way, Zyrtec and Allegra came out shortly after, and the same story was going on. By 2002, Shearing Plough came out with a new non-sedating antihistamine, for which they would had a, gotten a patent and approval, so they decided... Now they'll come around and ask the FDA to make Claritin over the counter because now it could be by this time Claritin was so widely known that just think we'll kill the competition when this competes over the counter with the sedating antihistamines. And we got a new patent on a prescription one coming online so we could kind of make money on both in both markets. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened in 2002. Finally, Claritin became available over the counter, Zyrtec in 2007, and Allegra in 2011. Okay. These were safer than the -the over-the-counter drugs. Now plan, here's another example of politics, plan B, which is the morning after pill Mm -hmm. that was, you know, approved in Europe in the nineties. In the United States, the FDA approved it for prescription only in 1999 during the George W. Bush administration, an overwhelming vote by FDA advisory
0: panel said it should be available over the counter. Which is Um, kind of the point when you talk about the utility of that particular drug time is
1: yeah important it doesn't do you which yeah. I'll get to, is, is a COVID example coming up here but i'm going to cut to the chase here what ended up happening was it took it took until 2013 and a court order through through two administrations through the bush administration and the obama administration for it to finally be made over the counter for women of all ages okay it was first made over-the-counter only for women above 17 in age in the Bush administration. And then when it was recommended to be available for all ages, because it's safe, you can't, mm-hmm. there's no, you can't take a lethal dose, um, the FDA actually recommended it be available for all ages in the Obama administration, but it was overruled by the Obama uh, Department of Health and Human Services. And President Obama himself said in a press conference, I don't want girls to be able to buy this along with batteries and bubble gum. Um, those are his words. Finally, a court ordered it over-the-counter in 2013. So it's a 14-year journey to get a drug approved for over-the-counter that, of course, it, it, it kind of defeats its purpose if it's not available over-the-counter. Why uh-huh. is that? Well, I'm sure there were a lot of, you know, social conservatives behind the scenes who didn't yep. want the, okay. And now, here's another example just happened in the last week in this country. Uh, finally, a new at-home COVID test was approved by the FDA. It's called Lucira, L-U-C-I-R-A. You could take it, you you can give it to yourself, it it comes with a kit, and within 30 minutes after you use it in the tube in the kit, you'll have an answer, okay? So the FDA approved it, but only with a prescription from a doctor.
0: Well, what good is an at-home
1: kit, right? (laughs) And it also says in the FDA memo that the doctor should, if the doctor prescribes it, The doctor doesn't need to perform the test because it's designed for the person. The person could, once they get the prescription, they can then go to the drugstore, buy the test and go test themselves at home. But they had to go to the doctor to get a prescription, which of course exposes you or others to the COVID virus. If you're concerned enough to go to the doctor's office, then either you you could possibly be giving COVID to other people there or Mm -hmm. catching it from other people there. Um, But you have to get a prescription. And then it also says the doctor is not to give you a prescription unless you're symptomatic. Now here's another thing that doesn't make sense. We've been hearing over and over again, the reason COVID-19 is so easily spreads is because 40% or more people don't even have symptoms. So they could be unknowingly spread it to others. So now you've come up with a solution. You could tell people, listen, I know you feel great, but even if you feel great, go buy one of those at home test kits and test yourself. And if you're positive, then get in touch with your contacts and tell Mm -hmm. them to test themselves and isolate yourself. That's a perfect way to address that problem, right? But you can't get the at-home test without a prescription and the doctor can't give you a prescription without you being symptomatic, which Ugh, again, defeats the whole purpose. Just a mess. This is what happens when the government is involved with deciding these things, as opposed to the market working and individual actors making decisions based upon the situation.
0: Well, and and so I I forget who it was on Twitter, but somebody I was following basically crunched the numbers. Now this is a Canadian example, but I'm sure it would work for the United States or really any country. Um, they basically factored in. So first off, uh, if you follow who our health minister is, she is a bit of a bumbling idiot, in my opinion. She she's she she was one of the individuals who argued that uh, it would somehow be unsafe uh, for. Canadians to have access to at-home testing which is just silly. Um, but the, the whoever it was crunched the numbers and said okay well for x billion dollars you could mail everyone everyone with an address let's say a, a, your, your your what's on file with the IRS or the CRA in Canada you mail everyone a test or two tests and you catch all of the in, asymptomatic or you catch 90% of the asymptomatic cases and you tell those people, hey, if you test positive, stay at home for two weeks, ride this out. And you immediately, in a two week span, allow for everyone who does not have the virus to, with some certain restrictions involved, kind of continue life as close to normal as possible. And you keep everyone who has symptoms and who is asymptomatic at home so that the the virus can pass and and they can uh, not spread it to other people. And just really simple solutions where it's like, I mean, I'm not a particularly profound guy. I don't consider myself to be some sort of rocket scientist or genius, but I can even look at this and go, well, that would have, that would have saved us a lot of trouble, which actually goes into my my last question for you, um, which is what the negatives have been from the lockdowns from the restrictions that have been made, I'm not talking necessarily economic costs because those are are, are well-documented, but I mean, there's a growing conversation that is happening uh, in terms of the mental health impact that the economic uh, loss has caused, the mental health impact that the lockdowns have caused uh, or or have imposed on people, um, and the impact that this has on things like not being able to see a doctor for cancer screening right. so that 's a lot of yeah. lot of lot of lot to unpack there but i 'll let you take it uh, from here in terms of where we are with opioids, mental health crisis, yeah. other diagnoses that we 're maybe missing now because of how we structured this
1: yeah just well just like with the earlier decisions, these decisions that we made by our leaders tend to be number one paternalistic and number two, not respecting our rights to, to self medicate our right to test ourselves and our rights uh, to life. So there, uh, you know, I, I realize there are externalities and, and that uh, as a libertarian, uh, you know, my rights end where another's begin. So if I could be spreading an illness to someone that could kill that person, then I don't have unrestricted rights to go around spreading my germs around. I understand of course that. Not, Yeah, But we need to also balance uh, trade-offs. So for example, we're seeing, now we know 10 months into this, and we know a lot more about this virus. We know that if you're under age 20, the risks of dying are extremely small. The last most recent numbers I saw from the CDC were 0.003%. That's three in a hundred thousand. Okay, under age 20, um, it looks like, according to the latest numbers, that the fatality rate under age 50 is about the same as, or maybe slightly worse than, for the common flu. The real problems start when you get into the senior population, and particularly with people with comorbidities. Uh, now, knowing that, well, we're doing is we're seeing i'm seeing as a surgeon people show up in the emergency room with surgical emergencies that i haven't seen in years uh, people who have a ruptured appendicitis that let it go so long they're, they're practically dead when they present to the emergency room and they have to be take up an icu bed to be resuscitated for days because they have such overwhelming peritonitis and you really see that these days but they were afraid to go to the hospital or the doctor because they didn't want to catch covid because uh, and of course, they may not be thinking. Especially if it's a person in, in 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 the 30s, you know, they 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 may not be aware of the fact that their chances of dying from appendicitis are way greater than the chances of dying from this virus. Um, we're seeing uh, the evidence that more and more people are foregoing important cancer screening, uh, mammograms, colonoscopies. People are getting delayed diagnoses of cancer, and by the time it's it's being diagnosed, it's advanced and the prognosis is much worse and maybe even you know dismal we're seeing um uh, people who are not doing their routine check-ins with their doctors who are allowing their controlled heart disease heart failure or copd or diabetes get out of control um we're seeing increased substance use in the home uh, because people are bored and depressed because of uh, the fact that they're having you know, financial problems and increased use of various substances. We're seeing increased cases of domestic uh, violence and domestic abuse, suicide, depression. People who have substance use disorder are being cut off from their normal means of getting rehabilitation treatments. Uh, uh, we're seeing people who are chronic pain patients getting cut off from their pain management. Uh, cases of people who are needing transplants, like kidney transplants, that are being postponed because of, uh, of, of you know governors unilaterally putting bl- blanket bans on non-emergency surgery. Fortunately, I, I, a lot of them aren't doing that anymore. They did in the early days, but they learned from that and they're not doing that anymore. They're allowing the hospitals to kind of work out their own solutions with their own medical staff on case-by-case
0: basis. It, it got so bad. I know that in Ontario, the the provincial health minister, when things started to trend downward, Basically had to have a press conference and say, "Hey, sorry guys, uh, we think about fifty or so people died waiting for surgeries that they probably should have been allowed to get, um, right. just because they said no, you can't have those surgeries." And it's like they 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 broadcasted as well only non-essential surgeries, and it's like that's a really gray line, and I don't yeah, what's like essential, it. You know, <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather my doctor tell me what's essential than. A, a, some bureaucrat who right. has there are no, there's no repercussion. And I mean, they working maybe with gross they statistics. They're not working yeah. with individuals
1: in their own. And then there's the other things. For example, this is worsening the uh, income gap. Okay, uh, a lot of those people who are uh, higher socioeconomic status, um, who may have jobs that they could do remotely, but then other people can't. And now with the, many schools being closed in the United States, despite the fact that the evidence is that where they've been open too, even in the United States, universities have been keeping track. There seems to be a very low incidence of, of spread within the schools because the schools are practicing social distancing measures. And the children we already know get, usually get mild cases and have extremely small uh, morbidity and mortality from this. The lower income kids, they come in homes where they may not have high-speed internet anyway for remote learning. Mm-hmm. There are stories of kids with their you know, iPads hanging around outside of Arby's to take advantage of the wifi so they can yeah. go to school yeah. and they may have parents who are not able to supervise their education. This is, these, these, are, these have long-term public health consequences. So this is, it, needs to be considered.
0: Yeah. And this is one of the things that I've, I've said. So I, and, and what's interesting is that I fall into the category of, of people demographically that I'm about to criticize. I get to do my job remotely. Um, it, it doesn't have an impact on my earning ability. Um, So it could be very easy for me to say, yeah, close the schools, like shut things down. Um, The issue is, and this is what baffles me when I see people who are kind of in my cohort beat the drum of closing the schools. If you're a working class American and you work at a plant of some sort, let's say a manufacturing plant, and they close the schools, your kids go to daycare or go to camp which is another group setting and right. so the whole argument that well if we just close the schools schools are super spreader areas and it's like well that's a pretty privileged thing to say if you're at home and you can and you can basically be part-time uh, educator or supervisor for online learning but for people who are working 9 to 5 who are now back at work thankfully those kids now go to camp, or they go to daycare, which is paid for out of pocket, and they're in—it's in the same risk profile in terms of being exposed to other people. And so that argument really never struck yeah. me as very convincing. And in fact, here's again this disconnect. In New
1: York City, Mayor De Blasio recently ordered the schools closed. Okay. Well, during the height of the New York City's terrible experience with the pandemic back in the spring, um, they operated daycare centers for the first responders and the frontline health workers that literally had, I think 100,000 children in and there were almost no incidences of infection or spread. So they already know that kids could be in, in, in daycare centers without getting spread. Why would it be any different in a school where they're sitting six feet apart and wearing masks or, or conducting classes outside whenever feasible and that kind of thing? There's no logical consistency. And another thing is that we know that very young children they don't do well with distant distance learning. They need in-person instruction. And again, these lower-income households, where they're, they're they're getting distant learning, they're they're crucial milestones in their cognitive and social development that are being missed. And meanwhile, the wealthier people they can hire a tutor, you know, and they could they may have be able to afford to have one parent stay home and supervise the kids' instruction while the other one works. But so it's it's actually disproportionately hurting. The lower-income people.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Making it's 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 making an already terrible situation worse for the most vulnerable among us, which I think is like if you were to evaluate public policy, is about as bad as it gets. Um, Dr. Singer, I appreciate your your insights here. Uh, that that wraps us up for uh, for today's uh, episode. I hope that you have a fantastic Thanksgiving. And uh, thank you again for, for coming on the show. I'm sure we'll have you back um, in the months to come to chat about whatever the next uh, development in medicine is. So uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Just to help us on our way. Come to and we're back on consumer choice radio. Uh, As I said earlier, a fantastic interview with a very knowledgeable guest talking all things vaccines. As always, thank you for tuning into the program. Thank you for uh, listening live on the radio or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, if you have any questions, please email or tweet Yael and I and we'd be happy to answer uh, anything that you have, um, good or bad feedback. So uh, until next week, have a very happy Thanksgiving, and we'll 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 talk to you next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, thanks again.